Hello and welcome to Tomorrow Comes Today, the Thought Leadership Podcast from St. James's Place. What's on the horizon and what does the future hold? In this episode of Tomorrow Comes Today, Rob Gardner and me, I'm Matt Potter, we'll be talking to Gavin Serkin, author of Frontier, exploring the top 10 emerging markets of tomorrow. To former NASA scientist Nicholas Booth and space researcher Elizabeth Howell about their book, The Search for Life on Mars, the greatest scientific detective story of all time. And to Amy Webb, futurist and CEO and founder of the Future Today Institute. But first, Rob, what's on the horizon? It's been a crazy year. I suppose the the thing is nobody knows right now. What do you see? So I, I agree with you. It's been a, a, a crazy year. Uh, but I, my reflection actually is it's been a lot of the issues have been bubbling away for the last decade. Uh, and I think the, mm. the kind of COVID-19 situation in the UK and around the world has shone a light, not just on how our leaders and governments deal with crises, which unfortunately is not very well, has shone a light on issues such as, you know, we're completely unprepared for climate change. And, you know, we haven't addressed the deep societal injustices that exist around the world. And I think the whole Black Lives Matter uh, conversation uh, has, has brought that to light. So, you know, where does this leave me? I think now more than ever, we have some deep long-term issues that we need to face into and address, be that long-term care in the UK, be that climate change, what's the UK going to do about it and what's the world going to do about it, uh, be that how do we create a fairer and and and, and sort of more just society for, for, for everyone. So, yeah, I think that if I'm honest, those situations have just been there and all that's happened is that we're just more acutely aware of them. I think that's really interesting. There was there was a discussion on uh, Twitter the other day, people saying, oh, my goodness, I wish 2020 had never never happened. Can we not go back to 2019? And of course, the answer was from, from the majority of people, no, you know, let's not go back to 2019 when we were um, living, a, a great number of people choosing to live in ignorance of uh, societal inequalities or choosing to, to get by in societies that functioned but would have been prone to something like COVID-19 anyway, and perhaps this was a wake-up call. So it's it's really interesting to see, I suppose, that's, that, that there are there are always going to be some people who, who love the known um, and other people who are like, well, actually, it's about time that we change things. Let's find out what it is and let's find out how to deal with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that a lot of the issues that we've just mentioned are, are – are, fall into the category of the frog in boiling water. And so we don't really notice them. Whereas what happened was that COVID-19 was like a frog in water that boiled very, very quickly in a matter of weeks in the first in the first part of the year, and therefore was a crisis that played out quickly and required a rapid response. The issue of you know racism in the UK and around the world uh the, the the kind of historical context uh for 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 black people around the world of the consequences of 400 years or more of slavery i think as you say most of us have been blissfully unaware and you know hence the kind of topic white fragility which i know is a topic that that that, that upsets people understandably you know when i first heard it it certainly made me think well i'm i'm not a racist i'm you know one 
uh, you know, but 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 the truth is, you know, I I went to school in Bristol. I used to go to White Ladies Road and Black Boy Hill and not and not think about it. Uh, and and we are now aware of these issues. And I suppose if we want to make sure that we have a better tomorrow, a more prosperous tomorrow, we need to face into these issues. And so I certainly sit in the camp that although this year has been a very tough year for everyone, I always think that progress is made on the back of, of, of tough situations. I suppose that's, I mean, there's something that unites our guests uh, this episode, isn't there? And that, that is that they are the people who are looking at those choosing, I suppose, to experience those tough situations, whether that's around the environment on Mars or the unknown future with Amy Webb, which we'll hear of later, or in, or in fact, you know, something that Gavin Serkin, uh, our first guest, is is uh, is concerned with, and 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 as the author of Frontier and a sort of Bloomberg's Frontier Markets uh, uh, kind of thought leader, he's he's very interested in the idea of of choosing not to sort of follow the crowds wherever they go, but choosing to go to somewhere. Maybe it's to a pharmaceutical company in Myanmar and kick the tires and inspect the machinery and 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 check out for himself what this kind of unknown uh, kind of blank space on a map, as far as most investors actually contains, and whether it's got opportunity there. The main reason for writing the book on frontier markets was at the time I was I was working at Bloomberg, running the emerging markets desk, and. Just uh, the the feeling that we weren't getting to the stories that I knew were happening on the ground. And so the book was really a chance to look a bit deeper into frontier markets, to live in those countries for a while and to experience like the micro story that was harder to project through big media like Bloomberg. You know, it didn't have big money money attached to it, it didn't have necessarily big names attached to it. Plus the the sense that the media often is telling a very one-sided story of countries where, you know, you're kind of assuming that everything is not so great because, you know, you're hearing about conflict, you're hearing about poverty and of course these things do exist but you know like we're like we experience you know we're as as british you know having grown up let's say with the ira you you understand when you're close to a situation that the headlines don't portray everything that's going on in a country so you know it was also looking at a bit more of a multi-colored dimension of you know everything going on in a country through the economy. We have these these movements for, for clean capitalism, for um, ESG and so on, where we're looking at how sustainable is a company's activities that I'm looking to invest in. This includes the network. This includes uh, the way in which they interact with government in sustainable ways and so on. Is that is that so far that kind of layer of trustworthy, timely and sort of transparent information lacking in most frontier countries? In a word, yes. I mean, it is lacking, definitely. Um uh, you know, and that is the challenge. That that to a great extent is why they are frontier markets because you don't you don't often have the extent of rule of law, liquidity, uh, transparency, and so you know that's your challenge as an investor. Um, to relate it back to ESG and impact and sustainability, I mean that after finishing the book, the biggest block I had of you know feeling that oh, I didn't quite get there was about sustainability, was about, you know, how much good is this investment in 
I don't know, a, a real estate project or whatever, actually doing for the economy and therefore the people. Um, and it, you know, it's very varied. And the, the whole impact in ESG wave, I think, is very positive for frontier markets and emerging markets um, because it is focusing people's minds on, you know, the bigger picture of, 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 okay, I'm putting money into this company, into this sector, and, you know, what, what's the dynamic of that? What effect is it going to have on people's lives and on the economy? Um, it's not as straightforward as investing in the rich world. You know, if you can, you can draw up a list of ESG standards that are very positive and companies will go ahead and, and do it. Even, even more polluting companies will go ahead and look at the ESG rules and, and, you know, spend to, to make the changes. In the frontier and emerging markets, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with companies and countries that have less budget and therefore are not able to make those changes. Often you're relying on a resource which won't be the cleanest. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, ESG becomes much more something of deep engagement and engagement is a bit overused in the ESG world, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's deeper than, than that. It's about say it's about working with companies and countries in order that you can get to, you know, what is a better place in three to five years, having an agenda like that. And increasingly that is something that has become adopted by some of the bigger investors um, in frontier and emerging markets. Is there a sense in which you can model the progress from being a, a, a frontier market, is there a standard set of steps that you see in the past and in the present in, on the way, if you like, to emerging market status? There often is, um, but there also is often not. So an example where it's not is Saudi Arabia. You know, it was not even frontier market status when I wrote the book five years ago. Um, and, you know, suddenly it's now an emerging market um, due to the fact that it has it has IPO Saudi Aramco. It's made some effort to bring foreign investors in. Um, there's still huge uh, lack of transparency. There is um, corruption. Um, there are there are lots of traits that you would associate with frontier markets. But one thing Saudi Arabia still has, even with the fall in oil, is significant wealth, and so it. it, it you know, it kind of leapfrogs the whole frontier, um, steps into straight into emerging markets. Uh, and an example maybe of one that is still kind of in the corridor is Romania. You know, Romania, part of the European Union, it's, it, you know, for, for frontier markets, it's, it's relatively wealthy, you know, not by European standards, but by frontier standards. And yet, it's still in purgatory, where it's kind of waiting to to, to get there. Um, and that and that's because it mainly because of um, a lack of diversity in the market. So you can go in and you can invest in banks, or you can invest in like the energy sector, but it's very difficult to get your hands on stocks in any kind of liquid form that would expose you to real consumer. Um, sectors. Do you find it's tough to almost to open people's eyes to to change? Because actually, that's got that's got uh, ramifications for investing patterns in all sorts of categories, hasn't it? Yeah, I think increasingly 
the mindset of investors is turning. So we've had the financial crisis, you know, just over a decade ago. Now we're in the COVID crisis. And what it tells you is that if you're investing even in super rich countries, risk is everywhere. And it can be just as binary in the developed markets as it is in frontier and emerging markets. You know, so emerging markets used to have this risk premium that, you know, we're going into areas where we don't understand quite so much. And therefore, you know, we're, we're demanding, you know, a higher multiple on the profit on price earnings or a higher yield for bond investors. Um, that still exists. But I think that investors are seeing that there's you're taking risk wherever you invest, including in U.S. Treasuries, you know, the so-called, you know, safe bet. Uh, you know, we, we, we know that uh, the dollar can tank and, and is tanking when you have stimulus measures like we have now. The backside of those stimulus measures is that the money's going hunting for higher yield, higher returns. And where does it go? It goes to either riskier companies in US and Europe, or it goes to riskier so-called countries. That is something that is starting to to turn. And, we, and we've seen that in this recovery phase. You know, emerging markets have absolutely soared over over the last last month or so. A lot of that is due to um, the stimulus packages uh, that are feeding through to emerging markets. A lot of it is is due to the IMF and World Bank stepping in to prevent a debt crisis in some of these countries. But it's also down to investors thinking, well, I need to make money. Where do I go? You know, I'm worried about the economies that I know and understand here in here in Europe or America. You know, how about emerging markets? Are there countries that you've been to and just expected to find something and just come out with thousand yards there going, oh, I absolutely give up. This this is going to be a longer project than Frontier. We need a different term for like out in the uh, out in the outer wilds of space. There's no way can anything happen here for the moment. I suppose the one that I was kind of scratching my head when I arrived there uh, to understand the lay of the land was Ghana. I went with Wells Fargo and neither of us could actually set up any meetings with anyone of importance in Ghana before we went, it was, you know, and I was thinking, you know, how can how can this be? You know, I'd been to nine other countries by this time and and managed to arrange meetings, and then we met one friend of a friend, and we went to his club, and he introduced us to other people, and you know, that morning, the next morning, we had a whole slew of meetings with everyone from the government and everyone important in business, and it's just such a it's a network. It's a clique. You know, it's a it's the kind of country where you've got to be in the inside uh, for to to understand how things work and to and to actually do well as an investor. Gavin Serkin, there, author of Frontier Economics. Rob, what's your view on these these kind of frontier economies and 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 is there an opportunity in them? And are we are we all moving to a, a phase where where more and more and more countries are becoming developing and then developed economies, or how's it, how's it looking? When we talk about frontier markets, they are, from a top-down perspective, their impact on 
total return to help you achieve your own personal investment goals, dreams and aspirations is quite low. And therefore, you need to weigh it up and go, well, what resources would you need to do it properly? Because as I think he calls out quite rightly, uh, kind of this idea of responsible investing using environmental, social and governance techniques as a framework for decision making are, are, are really powerful. We already know today and make allowances for the fact that investing in developed markets is different from emerging markets. So when 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 we look at our emerging market managers, we adjust for the fact that the, the ESG ratings need to be in the context of the geographies that we're investing in. So it's not fair to compare our emerging markets mandates to our development, you know, let's say European yeah, so judging judging them all by the standards of Finland or something like that, right? So it's exactly. And but what you are looking for is directionality. So actually, and here, you know, ESG is a framework for identifying opportunities and identifying risks. I think look, the the, the challenge with frontier markets, and you know, I'm I'm quite fortunate that I happen to know a few entrepreneurs who've built some brilliant businesses in some of these frontier markets, whether it's Ghana or Nigeria, and uh, is that you're beholden to the government. So just think the UK economy, how beholden we are to Brexit and what we do around that. So there may be a brilliant sustainable fishing business in Nigeria that you really want to invest in. It's got a brilliant leadership team. They've got a great strategy. But actually, the risk that's attached to something that you can't control, i.e., you know, the government organisations and decisions they make are quite high. So look, frontier markets, you need to, to go into them you need to have a significantly higher what's called expected return for the risk that you're taking. And then also to do it properly, it's quite costly because you need, you know, you need people on the ground who can do that deep ESG research to make sure that that you capture that value. So I don't disagree there is value to be had. But at a top-down level, is where do you focus your resources? And it's it's interesting, isn't it? That there's there's also this idea that people um, feel frontier markets are on their way up, and that they're necessarily on their way to becoming developed markets, and then we're all going to become uh, uh, we are all going to become Sweden or Finland in the end, or the United States. And it's I mean it's, it's interesting now as we're talking about climate change. It's perfectly possible that there will be more frontier markets because some of the developing markets and developed markets will be transformed by climate change will go back to a status of being frontier again yeah well look, and here you know so we talked about using the e the s and the g as a kind of a, a tool or a lens to to make decisions and so within that climate change sits within the e there's this i, I don't know if you're familiar with the this concept called the national weather service heat index but what it does is it tracks temperature and humidity and i don't remember if you remember last july we had what was called an extreme heat heat day so it's a combination of high heat like 39 degrees c and high humidity that's very dangerous people actually die in those circumstances and and our models allow us to say what did that look like around the world let's say 1950 to 1980 1980 to 2010 and so forth and the reality is over the next 20 years a lot of those frontier markets are those that are most exposed to this kind of heat intensity, this National Weather Service heat index. And therefore, and the reason I say that is that, unfortunately, that's out of their control. You know, Ghana can't do anything about that. That's a function of decisions we make collectively around the world about climate change and whether we, whether we tackle it. And 
Uh, unfortunately, there's this band that not surprisingly goes around the equator uh, where those countries are, are, are heavily exposed to that. And, you know, a lot of the frontier markets are exposed in that, in those kind of geographical, uh, that, that kind of boundary around, uh, around the equator. So there's, I mean, there's, it's very interesting. I was talking to somebody recently about a, a place that perhaps used to be temperate and used to have a lot of moisture and is now more or less uh, dead and, and just a, a land of exposed dust um, when, where there's no opportunity, but still people want to explore it. And you might say that um, that's Mars and space is, is the final frontier market. Now, we were lucky enough to have a chat with Nicholas Booth and Elizabeth Howell. They're the authors of a new book, The Search for Life on Mars, the greatest scientific detective story of all time. And, and Nick was, as I'll call him, was actually one of NASA's researchers working on the Mars project under Richard Feynman. So we talked to them about the ultimate frontier market. I was heading out to Kazakhstan because uh, I was covering a Canadian astronaut launch from Baikonur, which is where all of the launches, at least for the time being, are uh, happening um, for human spaceflight. And so that was back in 2018 in the summer when I went for the first of two opportunities. And while I was out there, I was posting pictures from my various adventures, taking a look at this old base, which used to be Soviet technology, now moving into Russian technology. And then just after I came back, I got a message from a fellow called Nicholas Booth saying, I went to Baikonur in the 1990s. And then Nicholas, you said something about uh, floppy disks falling on your head. I seem to recall in that conversation, right? Can you uh, yes. illuminate yes. what happened there? Exactly. I was at my mum's house uh, on a very hot day that summer, and literally... Um, she told me to, to find something. I was looking for it. And this pile of discs landed on my head. And it was a book that I didn't quite finish 20 years ago because I was in newspapers that I started to squirrel away notes. And um, I'd forgotten them because, as, as we authors know, no great work of art is ever finished. It's just abandoned. And in 1999, there were two NASA missions which both failed. And I just thought, you know, I'll just give it a break. And then it sort of lasted to 20 years. So I stopped reporting around about 2000. Elizabeth's been reporting from 2004. So I saw this stuff that she posted about Baikonur, and we just exchanged, you know, sort of texts and emails. And then I said, came up with the great line, which is, now, I've spent five years working on a book about a fraud. If somebody says to you, would you like to work on a book? Be very careful, but would you like to work on a book? What common ground did you find and what if any grounds where you would tussle and think i mean do you have different views that have had to be aggregated through the writing of the book as to what would constitute uh, sound evidence of, of life on mars at some point in the past well i, as I sort of started the, the process off as it were 20 years ago one of the problems that i had when i was working in papers was what's this book about is it about mars is it about life what is it really about? And at the time, in the slightly fuddled, befuddled state I was in, I didn't quite see through it. But since then, it made me realize it's a detective story. It's a myth mythic quest. It's Odysseus. It's, it's that. Now, in the sense that this, some of the story has gone on since the, for the last century with Percival Lowell, who was convinced he saw canals. And then the first missions were the Vikings, well, the Mariners in the 60s, and then the Vikings. They were predicated on, we're going to look for Mars, and you know, if it's there, we'll find it. Um, Viking landed, didn't find 
any life and was even worse purely because it couldn't say there was definitely no life and it couldn't say there was definitely life. Uh, so it was in this state. And then for as ridiculous as it now seems, for 20, well, no, 10, 15 years, Mars was a taboo. If you went to NASA and sat down with people and said, can we talk about Mars? They would literally look around, close the door, because it, you know, nobody wanted to touch it. So the next missions were in the 90s were sort of cut price. It was almost begrudgingly go and sit in the naughty chair and you've got about a tenth of the budget that you had before to do this. And the first missions worked, but unfortunately the last ones didn't. And do we not get to the point where we actually have to start looking at what we do mean by life? Because viruses are not truly alive, and yet were we to find something like a virus on Mars, we would clearly say that we had found something approximating life on Mars. What sort of discussions are there about what would constitute life and whether we would actually know it if we saw it? The fundamental point of trying to look for life on Mars is, will it be like Earth life? Will it be like terrestrial microbes that have somehow survived in this really, really harsh environment? Or will they be indigenous to, to, to Mars and be completely different? Well, two of the Viking experiments look, assumed that they were terrestrial and a third one sort of said it would be, you know, let's look at it from a slightly different way. And as I say, the results were fairly ambiguous. Um, and then since then, what happened, again, another point is life is a lot hardier than people thought. It's been found in nuclear reactors. So microbes that are in the, the you know, nuclear reactors live there perfectly well. They've found microbes you know, two and a half miles under the earth in sort of high pressure situations on the, the floors of the oceans. I think what will happen is perseverance will land and, you know, poke around, find really interesting stuff. And then that will set the stage for 2023, the spring of when ExoMars will land. Um, and again, perhaps Elizabeth, you could talk a bit more about the differences, what, what, what ExoMars is going to do. What uh, the Perseverance rover is doing is it um, is not quite as finely tuned to be looking for types of organics as the ExoMars mission. So it's almost like one is a scout for the other. That isn't quite how they planned it, obviously, because the European and Russian mission got a little bit delayed, whereas the NASA mission, at least so far, is on time. But what it means is that uh, the Perseverance rover can make some preliminary uh, observations or sort of recommendations, I suppose, and then the ExoMars team can uh, carry that forward. I also wanted to point out that Mars, you know, when we're looking at the search for life, is sort of a prototype for how we can do it in other areas uh, around the solar system or around the galaxy. And um, there's sort of that tension, as Nick was indicating, about life as we know it, you know, life as we understand it versus life that might be arising in another environment. And one of the challenges that we're finding, first of all, is that life is hardier than we would expect. Another challenge that we're encountering is that um, we can't make any assumptions, you know, when we jump into these new environments about exactly what life will look at. So if a scientist sees something that looks a little bit unusual in the environment, the first thing that they're asking is, is there a natural process, something that is abiotic or something that is not life related that can be explained as causing this unusual feature? If not, and only if not, which takes years, uh, sometimes decades of investigation, such as with Viking, um, then we can sort of go, okay, maybe there might be a life-friendly conclusion to this sort of a process. I suppose the great holy grails throughout the, the decades that, that I've uh, been conscious and alive has been the idea eventually of Mars as a viable place for human life. And we've talked about how NASA's ambition is for, is for the moon at the moment and to 
to get people up there working and 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 so on and perhaps exploiting its resources does that mean that the idea of of mars as a place where where humans could live is now kind of officially on the back burner i don't know if it's on the back burner but the thing is um getting mars terraformed would take centuries at the very least there are oh, yeah. some challenges that are associated with trying to make it work of course which we still are trying to figure out we don't know um, how much material is available to warm up the atmosphere, uh, for one thing. Yep. We don't know how much of that is actually existing on the surface. We don't actually know, too, if we can free it adequately from the surface. Um, some of the calculations that I've seen indicate that it may actually take more energy to be taking this stuff out of the surface than would be economically possible. By doing so, you're going to be wiping away billions of years of geological history, including perhaps a life record, you know, of uh, potential ancient microbes, not to mention the fact that you might be rendering extinct any types of Martian microbes that might be existing today, whether on the surface or uh, under it in some way. So there are a lot of technical and also ethical challenges that are associated with it, uh, financial challenges, and there's also the time factor. And so in the short term, when NASA is talking about landing people on the surface of Mars, it would be somewhat like the moon. You know, there is a partial atmosphere, so you don't need to worry about the pressure aspect as you would on the moon, where there's none. But at the same time, you can't breathe in carbon dioxide. That's not how human beings work. Now, one of the things that might be encouraging is that there might be water. It's still kind of uh, unknown, but there might be water on the surface of Mars that we could sort of clean up and repurpose for human use. But um, we still need to do a lot more investigation. In your fantasies not not on the balance of probability because i realize we can't say this in your fantasies what sort of life would you like there to be or have existed and what what do you think that there might have been or might be on mars what i would hope is somebody drills down to about under six feet finds something another mission goes there uh and then it's you know there's a sort of almost like a sort of drilling team that goes there and drills further and further and you, know, you might find something that's a precursor. And in fact, there was a paper that came out last year that said to, to look for life on Mars, you've got to dig deep. When you're talking about hopes and dreams for life, um, you know, I'm just kind of going back to my childhood and thinking about some of the influences. And like many of us over the decades, I was influenced by Star Trek, which of course is a very sort of humanoid type of life moving from uh, place to place. Now, I can't remember the name of the episode offhand. Any Star Trek nerd could probably get it faster than me, but there was an original series episode where they were in some sort of a cave environment and they found a creature that appeared to be behaving aggressively. So it turned out that this creature, rather than being uh, aggressive, you know, for no reason at all, it was because there were offspring involved. And you couldn't really read that intention of the uh, the organism because they weren't humanoid and so they didn't have the same sorts of emotions that you would see in other, in other types of species. And I think that's really where Mars comes in, because Mars is a spot where it's fairly easy for us to get there. I mean, as opposed to, say, going to the Alpha Centauri system, which is four, four and a half light years from Earth. Um, Mars is right next door. We can get there within a few months, um, which is much easier for, uh, for us to explore and then to come back. We can try out things. We can look for things out there. We can see what types of life are present. And then we can take those uh, learnings and we can move them on into other worlds in the solar system and even without, uh, sort of outside of the solar system. Nicholas Booth and Elizabeth Howell there. Rob, I mean, that clearly is such a wonderful thing to be involved in and such a wonderful thing to, to think about. Um, this, this sort of the opportunities, the threats, all of those things. It, Obviously, it appeals to the sort of the, the geek within all of us. But what do you think? I mean, 
I suppose it, it also that what they were saying about the, the the need for funding and NASA funding disappearing and being a hostage to governments. It sounds a little bit like the frontier market, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it does. As you as you say, I mean, uh, you know, I'm I've always been a huge fan of space, and that it definitely appears to the inner geek in me. And and I actually love Mars the movie with 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 Matt Damon. I think, look, you know, why why are we going to Mars? I mean, the the, the genius of NASA is that JF Kennedy laid out a very clear vision on why we need to go to the moon. And I suppose what hasn't quite yet been landed in general is why we need to go to Mars. Uh, so, I, you know, I think there's something really interesting there in, in sort of what, why do we need to put men and women on Mars, question mark. Uh, but look, I, I love the idea of this uh, scientific detective story uh, I suppose just, you know, talking about being a bit geeky, as you know, I'm a bit geeky when it comes to climate change. And, and Mars is often the planet that's used as a comparison of what if things go really wrong. I mean, I think the the, the CO2 concentration in Mars is about 95%. Uh, so in effect, Mars is an, an extreme example of global warming. Uh, uh, you know, the, actually, there are many, the, the reason why people are interested in going to Mars is that the sort of many geological similarities to Earth uh, in, in terms of how the planet's made up. But atmospherically, it's, it's very different. And, and that's mostly driven by the fact that it has this huge, uh, its, its atmosphere is a lot thinner than ours, and it's got this huge concentration of CO2, and therefore, uh, hence why it's sort of kind of temperatures and, and, and the sort of red planet. Uh, so I always think Mars is a bit of a kind of a, a health warning uh, to us on planet Earth on 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 what what could go badly badly wrong uh, you know in in hundreds of years time if we don't do something about it. Did you see the the uh, the planets the Professor Brian Cox series on on the BBC? Absolutely astonishing reconstructions of Mars as it used to be with seas and waterfalls and it used to be the blue planet at the time when we were were a red planet actually. And um, one of the things there is that you know the, the idea that fascinated me is that there, there may well be or have been life on Mars. If there was, we maybe wouldn't recognise it. And I love that idea that actually, even while we're there and sifting through things, and of course, we can't take a look in, in kind of in the round at the whole planet. We're arriving at very specific places and looking for very specific things. And we may be missing one, the, the opportunities or, or what's, what's two yards to the left or two yards to the right, because we don't have that purview. And two, the nature of life might have been different. I mean, look at viruses. You know, they're, they're, they're talked about as beings on the edge of life. They fulfill five of the seven criteria, but not all of them. I mean, it, it almost seems that our definition for what life could be or what opportunities could be might have to, to broaden a little bit and shift. And that's true of here on Earth as well, I suppose, in this, in this new normal post-COVID. Yeah, look, absolutely. I, it reminds me of that old, I think it's a Yiddish proverb, which says, to the worm in horseradish, the world is horseradish. And I suppose uh, it, it's calling out that we all have our, our biases. And, you know, if you, you know, and it boils down to, you know, where we live uh, at, you know, at a very micro level, you know, the towns, the villages, the cities we live in, the countries we live in. And I suppose that's why it's, it's good to travel and meet new people and, and all that, because it gives us different points of view. And I think going to Mars is just an extreme example of that, is if we go to Mars with a sort of very earthbound mindset, we're going to be looking for stuff with a 
an earth lens on. Uh, and, and so, you know, to, to the, the person on earth, the world is earth. And, you know, and then there's, as you say, a whole load of opportunities that we're just going to miss on Mars. So how do we, how do we sort of break that? that kind of uh, that trap well there's one one f- absolutely fascinating lady and she's our last guest and i have a feeling i have a feeling she could she could tell us something about this her name's amy webb and she calls herself a futurist and she's so fascinating because her thinking is around uh, how to get people to step out of the cultural assumptions that they're making and how to let people not not imagine a different future but find out what it's mo- most likely to consist of and what it's most likely to ask of them So I think one misnomer about what futurists do is that we predict the future. Um, the math doesn't work. I often say, what would it take for X to be Y? So what would it take for us to predict the future or to even try to control the future? And the answer to that question is, you know, we would have to be omniscient and and somehow be a supercomputer ourselves to crunch all of those data. So the, so the goal is not about prediction and the goal is not about control. Uh, because there is no way to do either um, accurately. So instead, the job is about reducing uncertainty and creating a state of preparedness within organizations. Looking at the consultancy that you did for the for the Mars um, mm-hmm. show, is this part of, I, I guess, the same kind of modeling impulse that, uh, you know, so we, I was talking to Elizabeth Howells, for example, here yesterday, who who was is part of the team who is looking to model different scenarios for life on Mars, for example, and they're very mm-hmm. keen on the, on using the maths and, and actually looking at, well, if it's silicon and not carbon, and what if there is a certain amount of water prevalence and so on and so forth. Would you say that if, if you're looking at the first crewed missions and you're looking at how that could work, is it is it really the same where you'll take all of those variables and crunch them down and then look at the yeah, paths right. of least resistance? Yeah, I mean, so I think there are sort of three questions baked into that. Um, so the, the first has to do with imagining plausible futures in a storytelling environment. So um, most of the work that my colleagues and I do is advising governments and Fortune 500s um, on on strategy. Uh, Now, we also, there's some crossover. So we also work very closely with writers and producers and directors when they have creative projects that are set in the future. So um, Mars is one example of that. And the work that we did, which was, I think, really great in terms of visual storytelling was derived from the present. So given what we know to be true today in the early 2030s, you know, what is plausible? And when you are trying to tell stories about the future, plausibility matters a lot because people have to relate to the story that they're hearing. Um, There's actually crossover from that into strategy. So, you know, whether we're working on a commercial or a television show on, on Mars or we're advising Blue Origin or NASA, you know, or Boeing on what that future needs to look like. In both cases, you need to have plausibility. You can go up to the edge of plausibility, but it needs to be plausible. Plausibility requires, you know, evidence and research. And in that process, you're telling a story that's more relatable and therefore actionable in some way. Um, And if it's somebody watching a show, the action that you want them to take is they're hooked into the story and they're feeling emotions. And if it's action that you want people to take in a business setting or a government setting, you know, they feel something that is recognizable, um, that, that conveys a sense of urgency so that they can find those incremental actions and take them. 
Now, this is fascinating because there's clearly what we're dealing with here is, yes, we're dealing with the, if you like, the, the nuts and bolts, the, the, the data that we're going to take and that we're going to crunch down and that we're going to find some, some scenarios and we're going to, to, to look at uh, what might be involved. But we're also dealing with the human mind. Now, what's interesting to me there is that we're, you're talking about dealing with the, the minds of the people that you're going to be communicating with. But how do you deal with your almost like your own mindsets? How do you um, factor out, uh, if you like? Cognitive bias. Absolutely. And, the, and yeah. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, um, in terms of the police's use of AI to predict who will uh, be a likely um, criminal, you know, that that depends on your own historical bias for which data, mm. you, data you're feeding in and so on. And it will give you the wrong answer, uh, you know, or, or, or an answer right. that you could have predicted if you factored in that cognitive bias. So how do you personally take that step outside? And do you have any rituals for that, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I have more than rituals. I've got a methodology. So my academic background is game theory and economics. And bias is uh, obviously something that I've been trained to course correct for once you can recognize it. Now, of course, your own biases are really hard to detect sometimes. So we use a very rigorous methodology throughout the entire process, whether we're looking for longitudinal trends or we're creating those scenarios that tell us something about the future. The point of all of that is to intentionally get us out, outside of our own experiences and perspectives and to force us to sort of broaden the aperture. If you're somebody who's interested in thinking about the future or working on the future, you should do it with other people. Um, the, the best case scenario is a cross-functional team or just like a group of colleagues or friends who have different interests than you. You want as many different perspectives and worldviews as possible when you are doing that work. That's how you, you know, having some kind of methodology to force you to do it. And then the people uh, who can add in those external ideas that, that you're missing or can highlight for you, hey, you know, you're, you're biased toward this one opinion or whatever. Um, th those two factors are critical when you are doing any type of work that has anything at all to do with the future. Do you find it very difficult? And does do people generally in the business find it very difficult, you know, to, to pitch for something without becoming emotionally entangled to it and, and mm -hmm. wanting that to be the right answer? Yeah, I mean, so so the phrase that we use is confronting cherished beliefs. And, you know, that that can be difficult anyways, as a person. But once you're inside of an organization, especially a well-oiled organization um, that has a lot of institutional sort of cultural elements um, or even shared vocabulary, it becomes really difficult sometimes to get people to acknowledge that there are signals outside of what they do that could inform disruption in the future. Sometimes you you have tremendous research, you have a tremendous product or you know, insights on what the future can be. But if you're not willing to confront cherished beliefs about how to get there, you are probably going to have some challenges. One, one of the things that I, I guess it must be very, very difficult, especially for people. And I'm going to ask the question where you do have CEOs, for example, who are raised on this idea that they must be visionaries and must have a strong vision of their own. And actually, 
own their biases and become these charismatic kind of leader figures is that is that part of the problem is it hard for them to take on board then the the idea that that they have to surrender some control i suppose to a plurality of, of views and to the data where they might be well i've started this damn company in my own image and i didn't get here today by listening to everybody else i think we have to be careful about sort of melding together personality and operations um, you know, I spend the bulk of my time inside of very, very large multinational corporations and huge government agencies, you know, and um, you have to be careful for the hippo in the room. Um, hippo is sort of a fun acronym that basically means that the highest paid person and their opinion. <laughs> yeah. You know, personality drives a lot of a company's culture and decision making processes and again, like another great example of, of, I think, a company that really messed up is BlackBerry. And everybody knows about the demise of BlackBerry. But what's more interesting to me is that right before the iPhone came out, a phone with no buttons that was smart and interactive and more fun than the Blackberries that everybody remembers, there were a lot of signals indicating that change was on the horizon. Um, and those signals ranged from haptic technologies. Haptics are sort of uh, technologies that buzz and provide some kind of tactile feedback. So there was a lot happening in the gaming world. There was a lot happening with over-the-air um, uh, transmission, television signal transmission in Japan. Um, they, they had made some crazy looking phones that doubled as tiny little television sets with huge antennas sticking out. So, you know, there were a lot of signals pointing to a future in which people wanted to have a portable device that was both something they could use for work and also a portable system for entertainment. And people within BlackBerry knew this. The problem was that within the culture, there was no way for them to share these insights. There was no pipeline funneling those um, those signals up to management. And when people did try to express, you know, some when they tried to share this information, they didn't have credibility because you know they were out. They weren't in the right department. Um, so again, you know that that's a really good story of a company that should have defined. And, and there's a lot of them whether it's BlackBerry or Gateway Computers. I mean, there's just, or D, like DEC. There's all these companies that sort of, just like Mercedes-Benz, invented something groundbreaking and new, right? And then somehow, over time, lost control of the market. Futurist Amy Webb there, talking about the value of zooming out, widening the aperture, and engaging other minds. And I suppose this fits a little bit with what we're talking about with um, Nicholas and, and Elizabeth regarding Mars and the search for life and opportunity. Does it not, Rob? Yeah, look, I think, you know, hearing uh, Amy, she's kind of like a modern-day Stoic philosopher. I think, you know, we, we, we've, the reality is we've known this for a, a long time. You know, we've got all these sayings with get comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think it's Seneca said the whole future lies in uncertainty. So, and and look, and that's why these people prey on offering certainty. We know that if we offer certainty to people, they they want that. And I think for me, you know, resilience and mindset is this sense that we can't predict the future. The future is uncertain. And how do we sort of prepare ourselves? And how do we build our resilience to to, to survive those those setbacks when 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 they go wrong, I always uh, I, 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 there's this book called Into Thin Air, which is about by John Krakow, which is about climbing Everest and 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 
and and that terrible sort of accident that happened on there. But he makes the point that he turned back. And the reason he turned back was he had enough spare oxygen decisions, which was a decision he'd made three months earlier before they'd even set off on the expedition, and he knew he could go again. Whereas everyone else on the mountain that day only had enough for one attempt and they and they pushed on. And and so again that that to me there are parallels in all of this, which is, you know, when we're, when we're trying to sort of think about how do we, you know, help ourselves to, to look after our future selves and our, our families from a sort of financial well-being, is how do we have enough reserves to, to survive those setbacks and build that financial resilience? And, and how do we and avoid putting all of our eggs in one basket? You know, we spoke to a mate down the pub who said, hey, I've invested in this stock or... You know, I'm dabbling in cryptocurrency, and you know, I've done fantastically well. Uh, so, so yeah, I think I think Amy's advice is just just spot on. Uh, no one can make single point predictions about the future. But there's also something, isn't there, about to me? It feels as if one of her stances is there is always an appeal open to um, that overarching human intelligence and that idea that well the binary decision might say this or this but actually let's step back and reframe and maybe not and I think that's one of the things I'm always certainly grateful for when I'm trying to make a decision is there's there's somebody who is let's to use your analogy an experienced climber who may not be able to tell me what to do but will tell me where the the risks are show me the right slope show me some of the paths I mean that must be something that you see uh, a lot of I suppose at St James's place that people don't necessarily want to know want to be told what to do but they want to be given the right information to make a more informed choice by a human being yeah you're absolutely right I mean I, I love the analogy of hill walking or mountaineering and I think that's what we, we all need is a guide in a changing landscape and someone who you know helps us set off to climb a hill or a mountain uh, and you know we need to pack a rucksack we need to make sure that we've got waterproofs and a fleece and some water and some snacks and a map and a compass and no one knows what the weather's going to be but what the worst thing you can do which a lot of people do especially in summertime is we drive to like a beautiful spot in the lake district or the peak district we get out of our car in our shorts and a t-shirt we set off to climb this this hill or mountain and then suddenly the weather changes and we're completely unprepared and and yeah no so i think i think it's a powerful analogy and story there was there was a, yes i remember being thigh deep in snow on a sunny day on the top of a mountain in slovenia in converse and somebody came to just check if we were all right and he didn't say a word it was the look on his face said everything uh so yes i'm always prepared for anything now <laughs> but that was i think that's a really good note to go out on the idea that just trust those who've been before make decisions that can help us with uncertainty i mean whether it's mars or a frontier market or just the future that we all face absolutely i i, I love that story and I'm, I'm just imagine i now realize that you were one of those people in your shorts and a t-shirt getting out of your car yeah. and that's a great example of recency bias hey it's sunny <laughs> it's nice how hard can it be uh so yeah no an, 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 an excellent way to wrap up very good been a pleasure let's do it again Thank you, everybody.